Kalamopod, the one and only podcast on themes in classical Islamic theology, hosted by me, Hannah Elwein. Ardent listeners of the Kalamopod will know that traditionally the starting point of Kalam works was the proof that the world has entered existence at a point in the past. Next, the Mutakalimun would proceed to prove that the originated world was brought about by God. These two proofs played an important role for the Mutakalimun. One reason is that God's role as creator of the world is one of the Quran's central teachings and the Mutakalimun consequently saw the need to subject this teaching to rational proof. But there is another reason why these two proofs mark the beginning of Kalam works. The reason is that the proof of God's role as creator is the starting point for the Mutakalimun's investigation of God's attributes and characteristics. But why is this the case? The Mutakalimun held that God is certainly not knowable in the same way as the physical world around us is knowable. We cannot just look at God in order to know what he is like. So the only way of knowing God, according to the Mutakalimun, is to look at his actions manifesting themselves in this world and to infer from them something about God's nature. What this meant specifically, we will hear in a minute. But let me first tell you that the Mutakalimun's conviction that God is only known through reason by inferring his attributes and characteristics from his actions in this world was at odds with how other classical Islamic scholars viewed the issue. We have in the previous episodes of the Kalamopod heard quite a bit about the opponents of Kalam, the more traditionalist scholars such as the Hanbalites. Remember that they insisted that reason was certainly not the way to come to know religious truth, but that the way to knowledge of God and other religious issues was revelation. The Hanbalites argued that God had revealed his attributes and nature in the Quran and that this was sufficient and indeed the only source to know him. So the Hanbalites held quite different assumptions about the way by which humans could come to know God than the Mutakalimun. And the Mutakalimun's position also differed considerably from yet another group, namely the Sufis. Sufism, or in Arabic Tasawwuf, is the, well, let's call it, more mystical branch of Islam. Sufis believe that true knowledge of God was not attainable by reason and rational proofs, as the Mutakalimun insisted, nor was reading in the Quran enough to really know God. They believed in direct mystical experience of God, a state they compared to intoxication, where humans' consciousness would completely dissolve and they would enter a different state, in which the truth about God would manifest itself to them. But as interesting as these other Islamic traditions are, as well as the ideas of how humans can come to know God, our concern in the Kalamopod are the Mutakalimun. So let's return to them. 
In order to understand how the Mutakali moon approached the divine attributes, let us take as an example the 11th century Mutakalim al-Bakilani and his Kalam work with the beautiful title Al-Insaf Fima Yajibu Eatikaduhu Walaya Juzu al-Jahl Bihi or The Equity of What One Must Believe and What One May Not Be Ignorant About. In this work, Al-Bakilani argues, in typical Kalam fashion, that God's attributes and characteristics can be inferred from God's actions, as the quality of an action reveals something about its agent. Turning to the task of explicating the divine attributes, Al-Bakilani writes, and I'm quoting, It must be known that the Creator is alive, in Arabic, Hai. He then mentions a number of Quranic verses which all describe God in this way. For example, Quran 25:58 says, And put your trust in him who lives and dies not. Watawakal al-Hayyil The reason why Al-Bakalani mentions Quranic verses is that the majority of Mutakalimun agreed that humans can only use descriptions of God which are found in the Qur'an and which are thereby authorized, so to speak, by God. It is not permissible to come up with descriptions of God which do not go back to God's self-descriptions. And in the Qur'an, the Mutakalimun found plenty of such descriptions. One Qur'anic verse famously declares, quote, The most beautiful names belong to God. Walilahil asma'ul husna. But you will also remember that the whole enterprise of Kalam rested on the assumption that it is the task of the Mutakalimun to provide reason-based proofs for religious dogmas derived from the authoritative religious sources. So, in the mind of the Mutakalimun, these Quranic descriptions of God need to be put side by side with rational arguments. And this is what Al-Bakalani does next. He argues, and I'm quoting again, The proof for this, that is, God's description as being alive, is this. No action can come to exist from someone who is dead and in whom no life inheres. But God Most High is the maker and creator of all things, and consequently, He must be alive. So here you go. Al-Bakalani's proof nicely illustrates how God's role as creator is made the explicit basis for the affirmation that God is described as living. The same logic applies to all subsequent attributes which Al-Bakalani establishes. Next up is the proof that God is powerful in Arabic Qadir. Al-Bakalani writes, It must be known that God has power over all things that can be done. Once more, he adduces a Quranic verse as evidence that God describes himself by this attribute. This is Quran 5.120, which states, And he is able to do all things. Wahua ala kuli shayn kadir. The Quranic verse is followed, as expected, by a rational argument, 
which confirms what the Quran says about God. Al-Bakalani writes, We humans know with certainty that actions cannot be performed by someone who is weak and unable and who has no power. But since it has been shown that God is the maker of all things, it follows that he is powerful. Al-Bakalani then moves on to proof that God is described as knowing in Arabic alim, in line with many Quranic verses. This is known, independent of Quranic statements, when we come to realize that the world around us is orderly and displays a degree of arrangement. This sort of argument is probably not unfamiliar to many of you, and you might know it as the argument from design, as it is often called nowadays. Al-Bakalani, for his part, argues the following, and I'm quoting. The proof that God is knowing is that his actions are full of wisdom and masterful and display the most beautiful arrangement and order. This is impossible unless the agent has knowledge of his actions. If you were to say that it is possible that someone produces an orderly, organized piece of writing without being described as having knowledge of the writing, then you would be out of your mind. Al-Bakilani's argument from design, if we can call it like that, is interesting also for another reason. You will remember from the previous episode of the Kalamopod that analogical reasoning played an important role for the early generations of Mutakalimun as argument and proof in their science. Specifically, they like to draw analogies between us humans and our actions on the one hand and God in his actions on the other. And this is precisely the sort of argument Al-Bakilani here presents. He essentially draws an analogy between orderly, organized pieces of writing produced by humans and the world, God's creation, which also displays order and arrangement. Just as everyone knows that such writings can only be brought about by someone who knows what he is doing, it should be evident that God's actions clearly indicate his knowledge. Al-Bakilani then continues to present proofs for several other divine attributes. But since I certainly do not want to put you to sleep by rehearsing every single one of them, I will just tell you which other attributes he sets out to prove. These are God's being possessed of will, in Arabic murid, his being seeing and hearing, basir and samer, and his being speaking, mutakalim. And yes, this is the very same word that became the name used for Islamic theologians, the mutakalimun. For each of these attributes, al-Bakalani adduces a number of Quranic verses and then proceeds to present a rational argument. Now, I'm sure that you have already gleaned from the previous episodes of the Kalamopod that the Mutakalimun had a particular affinity for really probing into the theological questions they investigated. This is also true for the problem of the divine attributes, and the Mutakalimun were not content with simply establishing which sorts of descriptions apply to God. They wanted to dig deeper. 
So they pose the question what precisely these attributes tell us about God. How precisely is God described as knowing or living? Or we could also ask, how do we have to imagine God when we say that he is knowing or living? Well, as you can imagine, the answer to this question depended very much on which theological school the Motakalimun belonged to. And once more, we can discern a fundamental difference between the two major theological schools, the Asharites and the Mu'tazilites. The answer given by the Asharites was this. They argued that when we describe God as knowing or living, we essentially say that God has knowledge and life. Knowledge and life, in their analysis, are real things, real entities. These entities of knowledge and life inhere or subsist in God himself, and they do so eternally, since God is eternally described in this way. The same is true of God's other descriptions, his being seeing, willing, and so on, which all refer to the real entities of sight, will, and so on, eternally inhering in God. The approach taken by the Asharites to these seven divine descriptions worried the Mu'tazilites. They feared that saying that God is knowing because the eternal entity of knowledge subsists in him and that he is living because the eternal entity of life inheres in him would introduce a plurality into the Godhead. The Mu'tazilites put forward a different understanding of the divine descriptions And in doing so, they definitely lived up to their byname, the people of God's oneness and justice, Ahl Atawhid wal Adl. They took the idea of God's oneness to an extreme and insisted that these seven descriptions refer to nothing but the divine essence, that is, they describe God himself. When we say that God is knowing, We do not mean that he has knowledge by which he is described as knowing. Rather, we mean that God is knowing by virtue of himself, of his very essence. The same applies to God's being living, seeing, willing, and so on. He is so by virtue of himself, not because of life, sight, will, and so on, subsisting in him. Well, While the Asharites and Mu'tazilites disagreed about what these seven descriptions of God actually refer to, eternal attributes subsisting in God, or God himself, they did agree on something else. Both theological schools maintained that certain other descriptions of God definitely and without any doubt refer to the divine essence itself, that is, to God himself. An example of this category is God's description as existent and, according to some Mutakalimun, his description as eternal. But the Mutakalimun came up with yet another category of divine descriptions, namely those that neither refer to God himself nor to an eternal entity subsisting in him, but to an action coming forth from him. An example of this category is 
when the Quran describes God as provider of humans, in Arabic razak, or as creator, using various words such as khalik and musawir. The Mutakalimun argued, when we say about God that he is creator, we mean that a creation exists which God brought about. Since God created the world only at a certain point in the past, after first having existed without creation, the Mutakalimun concluded that God was not always described as creator, but only once his creation, that is, the world, came into existence. So you see, the many Quranic descriptions of God might, at first glance, appear pretty unassuming. But at the second glance, they have the potential to raise some major questions for inquiring minds such as the Mutakalimun. To them, these inquiries into what precisely these descriptions say about God and what they actually refer to were not some theoretical and ultimately irrelevant undertaking. Rather, for the Mutakalimun, these inquiries were part of defending the correct understanding of their faith, of God and his relationship to creation. With time, the theological problem of the divine descriptions came to resemble more and more the proverbial can of worms, raising more and more questions. For instance, What was the most appropriate way of understanding the so-called anthropomorphic descriptions of God? For when the Quran describes God as having two eyes, two hands and a face, did it mean that God literally has eyes, hands and a face like we humans? But wouldn't this mean likening God to his creation, whereas the Quran insists, nothing is like him, Or did the Quran mean these descriptions in a metaphorical sense, intending by the eyes God's sight, and by the hands his power, and by the face his existence? Sure, this understanding would prevent unduly likening God to his creation, but didn't it also run the danger of explaining away, as it were, what the Quran itself says about God? These were the sorts of questions the Mutakalimun debated. And debating is what they did, about a plenitude of other theological problems. For example, why are some actions good and some are evil? Do they have their moral qualities independent of God? Or does God stipulate them? And can we humans come to know of moral values by the power of reason, Or do we need God's revelation to inform us? But this story has to wait till the next episode of the Kalamopod. And I should add that the Kalamopod is going on a little summer break, so we shall continue our investigation of this and other themes in classical Islamic theology in a few weeks' time. Until then, thanks for listening and hear you soon.